When we were slaves of sin, we were free in regard to righteousness. But then, what return did we get from the things of which we are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, and the return we get is sanctification, and its end, eternal life. When we turn from our sin and trust in the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, we are assured of the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Amen. Our Old Testament this morning shares a conversation between Moses and the Lord. Then Moses answered, but suppose they do not believe me or listen to me, but say instead, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? Moses said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw the staff on the ground and it became a snake. And Moses drew back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and grasped it and it became a staff in his hand so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was leprous, white as snow. Then God said, put your hand back into your cloak. So he put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his body. If they will not believe you or heed the first sign, they may believe the second sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or heed you, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. New Testament lesson today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. We're going to begin at verse 6. Then he went about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord our God, in this time we ask that you would fill this place with your Holy Spirit, that we would know and hear and believe the word you have for us. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. You, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. 
Amen. Well, today we return to our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. We pick up the narrative with Jesus commissioning the twelve to go out in ministry. They were sent to villages with the same message that Jesus had been proclaiming. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So, that's where we are. How would we get here? Right? Well, we're going through the Gospel of Mark because I thought it was important to begin our time together in ministry with a solid foundation focused on Jesus. And Mark is a really good place to start. Mark wrote this Gospel because he wanted his readers to believe in Jesus. He believed, he had been convicted of the truth of the gospel, and he had committed his life to proclaiming Jesus. It was good news he wanted and needed to share. And we see in Mark's writing this clear sense of awe, of wonder, when he's detailing Jesus' encounters with others. This first half of the gospel was designed to raise over and over and over again the question, who is this? And we often need to be reminded how incredible is God's love for us that he's given us in Jesus Christ. So just to quickly recap where we've been, Mark introduced us to Jesus with the wonder of his baptism the Trinity on full display with the Spirit descending on him as a dove and the voice from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And then we saw Jesus begin his ministry in Galilee, proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God. He gathered disciples. He drove out an unclean spirit, the first of many such events. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. That's good press, right? He cleansed a leper. He healed a paralytic. And in each one of these incidents, Mark is driving the reader to ask, who is this? Well, Jesus' fame began to extend farther and farther. More and more people took notice. Experts from Jerusalem were coming to see him to evaluate whether he was real or a fraud. And these encounters began to raise tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. They objected to his forgiving sins, to challenging their understanding of the Sabbath and expressing his power over the spirits. They accused him of being an agent of the devil or having gone crazy. Well, beginning in chapter 4, Mark began recounting some of Jesus' teachings in parables Jesus was describing the kingdom of heaven and how it was different than what currently exists through the use of story and imagery. And the religious leaders could not and would not understand. Chapter 4 wrapped up, you might remember, with Jesus calming the storm on the sea, both literally and metaphorically demonstrating to the disciples that he was in control of all that was happening. Chapter 5 
was all about Jesus giving life to those who were in the hands and bonds of death. Remember, he delivered the man tormented by a legion of demons. He healed the woman ostracized from society from, for her perpetual uncleanness and her ongoing hemorrhage. And he raised the synagogue leader's daughter from the dead. You impressed yet? Right? Are you asking in awe, who is this? I mean, for those of you who have received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, can you hear these accounts with fresh ears and be impressed by the overwhelming love that God has shown us in His Son? Do the promises of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed spark in you hope and joy? Mark wanted his readers to believe. So do I. As we begin this new year, let me encourage you to take some time to renew your own awe and wonder for God. As Grace said, remember all the things He's done. Remember all the ways He's met you where you are. All the ways that He's provided for your needs, even when you were unaware. All the ways He has blessed you. Have you had struggles? For sure. But who has sustained you and carried you through those struggles? And that's what brings us to our text for today. Having just been rejected by his own hometown, Jesus and the twelve head out among the other villages teaching. And it's at this point, after multiple demonstrations of his power and authority, that Jesus sent the twelve out two by two, to go ahead. And there's a lot packed into Jesus sending out the disciples. They are sent. They're sent in pairs. They're sent with authority over unclean spirits. They're sent with nothing except sandals and a staff. And they're sent with the expectation of receiving hospitality. They don't find it and they don't gain a hearing. They're to shake off the dust of their feet as a testimony against those to whom they've been sent. And I'm just going to take a, <clears throat> these quickly one at a time. They're sent. Jesus had been manifesting the power of the kingdom of the God through his early ministry. I mean, he demonstrated his authority. Those 12 had seen it. They'd experienced it. They'd heard him teach. And so all of these things added up that when he said, go, they went. Now, the disciples didn't know everything. What they did know was enough. They knew the message Jesus was proclaiming. They knew what they had already seen, heard, and experienced. And what they knew was sufficient for Jesus to send them out. They went, not because they were confident they knew what they were doing, but rather because they trusted the one who was sending them. Just as the twelve didn't know everything, so we often are called to go share the gospel without knowing everything. Not knowing enough 
can be the first great hurdle and the first excuse for not obeying the command to go. We're often called to go share the gospel without knowing everything. We do know, however, the message that Jesus was proclaiming. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That message hasn't changed. We also know what we have already seen, heard, and experienced in our own lives. That's sufficient for Jesus to send us out. We're challenged to go out as an act of obedience, not because we're confident that we know what we're doing, but rather we're confident in the one sending us. They're sent. Second thing is that the 12 are sent out in pairs. Friends, let this be an encouragement, right? Then, as now, faith and the gospel are not solo endeavors. The message of the gospel, the kingdom of God has come near, is at its essence a message of relationship. We're not alone. We don't have to go it alone. And this is an error that we've accepted as truth in our culture, that faith is a personal thing, right? Yes, it's personal in that it involves the totality of each one of us, but you see, what's really happening, when people say that faith is a personal thing, it's usually in the context of saying, keep it to yourself. You shouldn't burden others or impose on others what you believe. You know, your truth is yours. Their truth is theirs. Nonsense. Jesus was relational with a clear message that was essential for others to believe. The disciples were sent out in pairs to strengthen one another and to build relationships with others so that they could deliver Jesus' clear message that was essential for others to believe. And we're no different. We're called together, and we're called to be together, to strengthen one another, and to build relationship with others so that we can share Jesus' clear message that is essential for all to believe. It's good news. It's the assured hope of our salvation. Some of you may have noticed in recent months that when we receive new members, we refer to them as covenant partners. This is intentional. Our polity says, becoming a covenant partner is important not only to the congregation, but even more importantly for the covenant partner, as they are positioned to receive encouragement, support, and correction that the Lord promises to those who share spiritual fellowship. We're not alone. As we start this new year, ask yourself, with whom are you walking to encourage and to strengthen your mutual faith? They're sent. They're sent out in pairs. They're sent out with authority over unclean spirits. Twelve are sent out with authority over unclean spirits. This one freaks people out. It does. 
notion of casting out demons is way, way, way out of our comfort zone. And that's okay. Dealing with the spiritual realm ought to be approached with a healthy humility. It's foolish to engage with hubris on our own. That said, it's also worth noting that denial and avoidance aren't really good options either. But here's the thing. We don't have to be intimidated. Remember what we've seen in the gospel thus far. Jesus is stronger and greater than any unclean spirit. They are all subject to his authority. It's to Jesus we run. It's to Jesus we cling. It's to Jesus we obey. And it's Jesus in whom we trust. If and when we encounter an unclean spirit in someone else, we're not on our own to handle it. We call on Jesus in prayer to exercise authority over it. Now, I want you also to remember the big picture of what was and what is happening. Jesus was leading and coordinating the campaign for the kingdom of God. That kingdom is coming. Jesus is moving forward, not retreating. So casting out demons is part of the campaign, a campaign that will not fail. And we'll talk more about this at another time. I mean, the comments here in Mark are brief and they're illustrative rather than an instructive on the methodology. The point is, the disciples were sent out equipped and empowered to extend the kingdom of God in Jesus' name. And so are we. They're sent out, sent out in pairs, sent out with authority. They're sent out with nothing, nothing except sandals and a staff. Sent out remarkably empty-handed. I mean, they were forbidden from taking anything with them except the staff. I mean, look at what he says. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. How does that work? Well, the power of the kingdom of God is not manifest in the things that the world values or trusts for security. Food, possessions, and money are not required for the gospel to proceed. The disciples had to go forth in obedience, trusting that God would provide their needs along the way. Let me say that again because although we can grasp the concept, it remains kind of elusive for us in practice. The disciples had to go forward in obedience, trusting that God would provide for their needs along the way. One of the men's groups is reading a book by Francis Chan where he wrote about how we erroneously struggle and rely on human things to make the gospel message attractive. In his book, Letters to the Church, he notes, if Muslims were advertising free donuts and a raffle for a free iPad as a means to get people to their events, I would find that ridiculous. It would be proof to me that their God does not answer prayer. If they needed rock concerts and funny speakers to draw crowds, I would see them as desperate and their God as cheap and weak. 
Now understand I'm not judging any church that works hard at getting people through doors with good motives. I spent years doing the same thing, and I believe my heart was sincere. I wanted people to hear the gospel by any means possible. Praise God for people who have a heart for truth. I'm just asking you to consider how this looks to a watching world. While our good intentions may have gotten some people in the door, they also may have caused a whole generation to have a lower view of our God. The gospel message has power because it's the self-revelation of God. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they've watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's from Isaiah 55. We can and we need to trust that. And while I'm here, I want you to note that the, the mission on which the twelve were sent, it involved the kingdom of, of heaven, the kingdom of God proclaimed by Jesus. And the message was to call people to repentance and trust in Jesus. They were not railing against Rome or against the Jewish authorities. They were describing something completely different. And I want to spend time, uh, just a moment here, because something I saw on the news a couple days ago. There's a conference going on in Miami this weekend entitled Evangelicals for Trump. Now, I want to be really clear here, and so follow me closely. It is always a grave mistake and an error to tie our faith to any human institution, power, or authority. Always. No exceptions. Republican, Democrat, Independent, other, it makes no difference. It always is a grave mistake and error to tie our faith to any human institution, power, or authority. I heard Paul Douglas mention our confessional standards. In there is the Barman Declaration. Barman simply and clearly states what its authors in the confessing church believed to be the truth of Scripture in opposition to the cultural trends of its context. Its intended purpose was to call the church and Christians in Germany to account and to submission to Jesus at the cost of allegiance to the dominant political trends of Nazism. The Declaration describes the error and the consequences of the error in conflating the gospel with any human institution, cultural trend, or leader. So what do we do? Be informed. Be involved politically in this election season. Support the candidates and the platforms that you have prayerfully discerned God calling you to support, but don't worship anyone other than Jesus. Don't equate any candidate, Republican, Democrat, Independent, or other, with someone to be worshipped. Don't tie your faith or the gospel to anyone other than Jesus. They cannot and do not hold ultimate authority over your life. Jesus does. Now, back to our story. 
The simplicity with which the twelve were sent forth, it highlights the one thing that they were to carry, the staff. In short, the staff was the symbol of the new career that these twelve had been commissioned to undertake. They were calling out a new herd, a new people, a new Israel. I mean, and just as it had been with Moses, as Bob read, the staff was this tangible representation of the power of God with the twelve. And so that same thing applies to us. We don't need that other stuff. Our sharing the gospel is the shepherd's call to God's flock to come forward. And finally, the twelve are sent out with the expectation of receiving hospitality. If they don't find it, if they don't hear it, get it, gain a hearing, they'll shake off the dust of their feet as a testimony against those to whom they've been sent. They were sent out with the expectation of receiving hospitality. They were prepared for rejection, but expecting they'd be welcomed. And that seems backwards to us. I mean, we go out almost anticipating hostility, not hospitality. We often anticipate a negative reaction. So we need to remember that when we are sent out, God's already done the work of preparing the way for us. I mean, the 12 weren't sent out indiscriminately. Neither are we. We're not blazing trails that God has not already traveled. The point of our going is to be faithful to Jesus' command to go. The message of the gospel and the power of the kingdom will be realized whether or not the reception is favorable. And how do we know that? How do we know that? How do we know that the message of the gospel and the power of the kingdom will be realized whether or not the reception is favorable? Right here at the table. We know because of this table. At this table, we see the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ in the most vivid way. Here, Jesus proclaimed the body broken, his blood shed. Here, Jesus declared that his broken body, his shed blood, are a sign and a seal of the victory he would win over sin and death. A victory he achieved when God raised him from the dead. The reason we gather, the reason we worship, the reason we celebrate this meal is because it is the good news we've received. God so loves us that he gave us his only begotten son that whoever believes wouldn't perish but have eternal life. <clears throat> In this meal, we have the guarantee of God's kingdom come near and God's kingdom yet to be fully realized. Our mission is the same as the mission of the Twelve, to declare what God has done, to declare what God is doing, and to declare what God has promised to do. So let's be bearers of the good news. Amen. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you for this meal. We thank you and we praise you for what it means. We thank you and praise you for what you have done in Jesus Christ, in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension in victory. 
Lord, we thank you for what this meal is for us today, a strengthening, a renewing, a uniting, an encouraging, an emboldening. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you for what this meal foreshadows. The heavenly feast, face to face with you in the fully realized kingdom on that day. Oh Lord, as you have sealed us, as you have strengthened us, as you have renewed us in the power of your Holy Spirit, send us out that we might be ambassadors for Christ in this community and everywhere we go. Make us instruments of your grace that your love given to us in Jesus would be poured out on others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.